Hello and welcome to Intelligence Talks, the podcast from the research team at Knight Frank. I'm your host, Senior Research Analyst Anna Ward. This week we'll be tackling the big questions surrounding the UK housing crisis. How can we build better homes that are more affordable? I started out by speaking to property journalist and former editor of EG and Building Magazine, Peter Bill, an urban regeneration specialist and former government advisor, Jackie Sadek, about their new book, Broken Homes, which exposes some of the issues in housing policy, which they argue has led to a dysfunctional system. And you could find a link to the book in the podcast show notes. Peter previously worked for house builders, and it's this experience which really informs some of the findings in his book. It seemed at the time that everything was pretty much as it should be. We built houses about eight to the hectare, I suppose, in the countryside. They were houses wider apart than they are now. They tended to be around 850 square feet minimum, or typically 950, 1,000 square feet. Jackie is currently working as a property developer herself, bringing forward 1,500 new homes in Bedfordshire. So I come at this rather differently from Peter, having been in and around this arena for some time. He's the big analyst on all of this, and I'm the one that's out there trying to walk the walk. So we are an interesting combination to have written this book. I also spoke to Knight Frank partner Charlie Dugdale, whose focus at the firm is as a development consultant. Charlie often advises landowners on forming development partnerships and recently led the research and evidence base to support the work of the government's Building Better, Building Beautiful report. Here, Charlie speaks about how Britain could deliver better quality housing and what needs to change. There has to be some changes to policy because, in fact, most landowners do actually want to do the right thing. And we've managed to demonstrate that through our work. So, Peter and Jackie, let's begin looking at your book. Clearly, you know, a big focus of your book is on quality housing, and and you identified that as the key stumbling block rather than quantity of housing. You also referred to space standards being as they were 100 years ago, soaring density levels and homes without gardens doubling since the 1970s. So, Peter, if we start with you, what would you like to see change in this industry and why? When we looked into writing the book, I started to look at the numbers on density and size and discovered fairly easily, really, that there's been an enormous squeeze since around the mid-90s. And the density levels have gone from 25 to the hectare to over 40, mainly because of flats, but not completely. And at the same time, the size of the actual units has shrunk quite a lot down from the 850s to the 650s in size in some cases. And I think we were concerned that we could see why this has happened. Anybody in the house building industry knows why it's happened. So we came to the conclusion it would be a really good idea to have a floor on space standards and a ceiling on density standards in order to protect those people at the sort of bottom end of the market, the people who have to buy what they can get or rent what they can get, they're not protected from it. And they end up in very, very small homes. Jackie, would you say that that's your sort of chief bugbear at the moment then on housing? Have there been any efforts, do you think, so far from government or industry to go against the grain of those sort of smaller density sizes at all? Well, sadly, Anna, it isn't my only bugbear, but it is one of my main ones. And I think it's been brought to a very sharp focus by the pandemic. The idea of trying to homeschool a couple of small children in a flat fills me with absolute horror. And we've seen the terrible stories that have 
that have emanated. I mean, I'm with Peter completely, and we come at this slightly from slightly different angles, but he and I are, you know, absolutely of one mind and unite behind what is actually the UKR, UK Regeneration, the company that I founded and owned. Our company motto is everyone deserves better, and we mean everyone, you know, from, from the supply chain through to the workforce, but mostly through to the people who live in the homes that we're building. I was working in the best job I'd ever had, actually, as a government advisor on regeneration issues for Greg Clark in, in the coalition government, when I got so, so exasperated by the fact that it was so much easier to run around the country and tell people what to do. Nobody was actually doing anything right. That eventually I thought, well, I've got to get, get out there and actually demonstrate how to do it. And as a result of which, our company bought this site in, in Biggleswood. We bought 960 acres and we brought forward this plan for a new, as is a garden community, a new garden settlement, we're calling it. And where, as I say, I have, fifth, I have a consent for 1,500 homes. But far more than that, I have an ethos, really, to show that you can build homes at pace, at quality, at scale, that you can do it without compromising the natural environment, and you can do it without shafting the local community. And I'm hell-bent on proving that. And so then you say to me, well, what, what is government doing that is step in the right direction? Well, some of the stuff on space standards, we've, you know, there's been a, an aching silence, really. And, and we were very relieved to see that that was remedied somewhat in the recent PDR statements on space standards. So we'll move now to Charlie and his stewardship initiative. Charlie, before we do that, do you have any sort of words, really, just to add to Peter's comments just around the Building Better, Building Beautiful report, which you contributed to and how that can help contribute to better quality housing? Yeah, I mean, and and to the extent that it relates directly to space standards and density. I mean, I, you know, I think some of the work that we did was around showing that some of the rules or, or theory that governs the behavior with house builders is not is not always the case i mean most people understandably believe in the law of diminishing returns as you get larger values of homes tends to fall it was very interesting when we studied the poundbury example that the houses tended well the duchy there have always followed a philosophy of offering larger homes and we showed that their, their average home was 44 percent higher than the local comparators but what was really interesting is that those values didn't drop off in the way that people expect and normally see. And the reason is, of course, is they've taken a, a bespoke approach to delivering really good quality homes. And so it was able to maintain values with larger homes. So I think there's a real sort of sign there of an approach which doesn't have to be at the expense of profit. And it's also probably interesting to reflect on their approach to density as well. You know, Leon Creer's master plan there did achieve a a civilised density at 40 dwellings per hectare on average, which is lower than the historic centre of Dorchester, but much higher than the urban sprawl that's happened through the 60s and 70s. And I think that touches on something that I have some concerns about too many standards. I believe in standards, but I think if you set sort of collar and caps on things, what you can do leads to homogenous development. And I think what we're trying to achieve generally is something that feels more organic, but deliberate at a pace. So where we tend to come from is to do more work up front. And that, and that might come from the local authority, but it's really ensuring that development is contextually appropriate. And you do okay. that through understanding the character of the local area. You, understand, you do it through the place potential 
analysis and creating perhaps a design code that is locally distinctive and by working with the community. And in terms of working with communities, I mean, obviously you've, you've been developing the stewardship initiative. Would you be able to just tell our listeners a bit about how that can work? Yeah, so I mean, stewardship as a as a sort of philosophy, as an ethic, came out as one of the core aims of the Building Better, Building Beautiful Commission. It's all about looking after our land. It's all about encouraging responsibility to the future, changing behaviours from short-term ones to long-term outcomes and objectives. And what it does is it recognises that the sort of the one entity that has that long-term outlook is actually the landowner. And the landowner comes in any form from public sector, institutions, farmers perhaps, but in almost all cases there are obstacles from them participating. And participation is very important, just like the stewardship code for investment asks investors to participate at AGMs and within that investment. In the same way we're asking landowners or inviting landowners to do the same. But to achieve that, there has to be some changes to policy because in fact, most landowners do actually want to do the right thing. And we've managed to demonstrate that through our work. There are just these big obstacles facing them at the moment. And we've we've sort of honed in on, on the tax regime and in the time frame of investment and in the planning obstacles that are probably the three biggest blockages. And so the stewardship initiative, which has been formed out of that recommendation from the commission, is about working with government, with landowners who have the raw material and identifying a series of measures that can better encourage them to participate in development. And thankfully, people are listening to that and we're hoping to make further progress. Would you ask just to give us some examples of how that could work in practice? Are there any live examples at the moment in the UK? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I would say Prince Charles was well ahead of his time when he wrote A Vision for Britain 30 years ago. He was probably lambasted by some at the time, thinking he was a bit of a dreamer. But through Poundbury, 25 years on, he's proven that it's an approach to curating a walkable mixed-use community that leads to jobs, which leads to livelihoods, which leads to value to the local economy. And so that is perhaps our best example. Now, there are a number of others where people are following that approach despite the obstacles they face. And there are a couple of good ones. And not three in Scotland, Tornagrain Grain is a great example. The Murray Estate's doing that. Uh, Chapelton of Elsick is another great example in Aberdeen. And there are others around the country. We're lucky enough to be working on a few of them. But we're often finding that those landowners are taking projects forward in this model despite unbelievable cost to them. And some of them, unfortunately, are now turning around saying, look, if if we had known now or or known at the start what we know now, we just wouldn't have done this. We just wouldn't have done this. And so we have to remove those obstacles. Interesting. Thanks, Charlie. So it'll be interesting to get your feedback on that, Jackie and Peter. And obviously in your book, you also reference the Garden Communities Programme, which is supposed to bring over 400,000 new homes across nearly 50 settlements. So It'd be great to hear really perhaps Jackie might might want to come in here just on on the opportunity here and how stewardship might be a kind of useful way of going forward with that well we're fully paid up devotees of the stewardship movement and we're absolutely thrilled when Charlie was able to in the briefing we had with him was able to populate it a bit further because actually it's what we come up with both in the book I have to say we don't have any silver bullets 
as to how to solve the housing crisis. But the biggest partial solution we could come up with was a stewarded model whereby you could bring forward a curated place. And that I think we think is, is essential, that the place should be thought through and curated, that work, as Charlie says, work should be done up front and that the local vernacular should be central. And so we were, we were thrilled to find that Charlie was on the, on the same lines. It comes through in the book, but it also, I hope, comes through in the development that we're doing in Biggleswade, because I'm trying to be a living example of what it is we're trying to do in terms of garden community. Garden communities tend to get a bit of a bad rap at the moment. Number one, they're taking an awful lot of time to come forward, but I think that might be in the nature of the beast. And number two, of course, one of the big problems we've got with them is that they are by and large still predicated on the use of the private car, which, of course, does mitigate against a beautiful place. So we're doing a lot of work to try and meet those challenges. But I have to say, and it goes back to the point that Charlie was making, the planning system, whilst we're desperately reliant on it to make sure that, you know, that people don't behave badly, it doesn't reward good behaviour. And there isn't really much of a way that you can say, look, I'm in good faith and I want to bring forward a beautiful place and get rewards for it through the planning system. It just doesn't happen. Thanks, Jackie. And Peter, I think in, in the book, you cite the planners Litchfield estimating that only 21,000 of those 400,000 new homes will be built by 2024. So, so what are the stumbling blocks here? I mean, there are probably more press releases than houses have been built in this programme over the last few years. The stumbling blocks, I do know, I don't know what they are. I think what we've got here is a, is a programme which is largely a product of political imagination rather than realistic development. If you look at them, there are 50 of them. Most of them are 10, 15 years old. They used to be echo towns and now they are garden communities. I mean... I don't know why people have had the patience to keep going. I did take a look at the Echo Towns programme and nothing's been done, almost nothing, since 2007. There are very few examples of people being able to get on and do this properly. And frankly, I don't have the answers to why they haven't done so, except to say that they're more a political concept than a realistic concept. The other thing, other two things I wanted to say was that we were, again, like Jackie, I was delighted to see that Charlie had come up with an imaginary site in a place called Fineborough and had gone through that to show what can and can't be done under the stewardship model. And that the conclusion was that if you do build better, you can charge more, which I think is key to the whole process. Because the first two chapters of our book take a single imaginary site, which is not quite so imaginary, it's sort of distantly related to Jackie's site, where a nice developer decides to put 1,500 homes on it and a more pressed developer decides to put 2,000 homes on it. And with some help, we've actually done the uh, land appraisal studies. And yes, you get a slightly lower land value on the residual land value, but it doesn't make the thing unviable. And of course, it makes it a much nicer place to live after they've been built. The social value, if you like, is much higher than the social value of the homes on more squeezed estates. The problem you've got is that uh, nobody takes any account of the social value. One final point I'd like to make is that a lot of big sites seem to be made unviable by the infrastructure which is added to these small towns. And I think Charlie refers to it in his uh, publications for the better building beautiful thing. 
And you just have to wonder, you know, how much infrastructure should be paid for by the state and how much by the individual site. And it seems to me that the individual sites are being freighted with infrastructure that really should just be paid for directly by the taxpayer. It'd be great just to hear some of your views, really, Charlie, on Peter's comments as well. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, I did want to echo Peter's comments because I think he's he's absolutely right. Within our report, Cost and Value, we highlighted the example of Wellbourne and Fairham. It's one of the proposed garden towns, 6,000 homes. It's got a, a willing stewardship landowner in place and they are meeting huge obstacles. And they are sort of big three that I referred to earlier. Planning has been tortuous. I can't mention the figure, but it's more than many, many millions of pounds at risk and the time frame, and really yields very little returns. The infrastructure costs, as Peter mentioned, are huge and they are across all these major projects. In fact, they make almost all of them unviable in principle. We studied 20 and on average, they have a cost per house of £51,000. Now that is over eight times what a small project contributes through Section 106 or SIL. And so not only are these projects delivering their own infrastructure, they also have to contribute significantly to others through Section 106. The problem is that planning authorities see these big projects and think, oh, that's going to pay for our new motorway junction or new train station, whatever it might be. And, and they simply can't afford it. And so we're not actually getting the affordable housing from these projects that they need. Now, I think one interesting part of planning reform is going to look to address that. And it was good to see that Jack Airy has recognised that. And I think, you know, there is going to be potentially a better balance struck between the large project and the small project in the future. And of course, tax is, I keep on coming back to it, but Wellborn, you know, I can't go into detail, but they've suffered unbelievably significant dry tax charges in order to bring the land forward. And all of that money could have gone into community investment, into affordable housing. And that's all the landowner wants to do. They want to recycle their investment into the land. And they're being blocked from doing so because of the regime and the the structure that this country offers them. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. Mm -hmm.